On Florida's Space Coast, we think you can have the best of both worlds. Kind of like right now. Driving, at your desk, maybe at the gym, but you're also grooving to some music. Visit us and you'll go to the beach and see a rocket launch. Or go kayaking and manatee spotting. It's all waiting for you on the only beach that doubles as a launch pad. Plan your adventure today at visitspacecoast.com. Stephen, Cameron, do you want to explain to us what, was, what we saw on the television cameras out there today and what's happened since? Can you explain? Uh, yep, so uh, I've been, just had discussions with the uh, match officials and um, you know, I've been charged with attempting to uh, um, uh, to change the, the condition of the ball. Yeah, look, we, we had a, um, a, yeah, a discussion during the break to and um, yeah, on my on myself, I saw an opportunity to potentially use some use some tape, get some um, you know granules from the you know from the rough patches on the wicket, and and try to um, I guess change the yeah change the ball condition. It didn't work. The umpires didn't obviously change the ball, but uh, I guess once I was you know sighted on the on the screens, and, and having done that, I, I you know painted quite a lot, and uh, yeah that that obviously resulted in in me. Shoving it down my um, my trousers. So. It was tight, was it? Like, yeah. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cricket Unfiltered podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Menzel. And yesterday marked the one-year anniversary since Cameron Bancroft was sprung applying sandpaper to a ball in South Africa. And to help me sort of reflect on the year that's been and what's going to happen in the future, I have on the line Jeff Lemon. Jeff, how are you? Hello, Andrew. Nice to be here. So great of you to come on. So now, listeners, if you're, you're not aware, Jeff has written a fantastic book called Steve Smith's Men. And congratulations, Jeff, because I saw that it was shortlisted on the MCC Book of the Year Awards and it's in the, the top six. So that must be very thrilling for you. Yeah, that's a pretty exciting development to uh, to get the nod from Lords and, and be on the shortlist there among some very esteemed companies. So I, I wasn't necessarily expecting anything like that when I wrote it because I, I wrote it all in a bit of a blur after, you know, as, as you would know, when the whole story blew up, it, it took a lot of us by surprise and, and suddenly there was this absolutely chaotic response across the world and um, huge interest in, in that story. And so when I got home from South Africa from that tour, you know, it, it seemed logical that someone had to try to pull it all together and try to give the fullest possible account of, of what happened and, and why it might have happened. Um, and that job fell to me, but there wasn't a lot of time to do it. So we, we, we hustled through it. And I, I, I hadn't actually had time to really think about whether the book was any good, but apparently some people think that it is. Yeah, it's a fascinating retelling of the story. And uh, there's just so much in there. And, you know, there's, there's so much new information in there that, you know, even I didn't know about that um, we'll certainly get to in this podcast. But... Before we get into, you know, what the the sandpaper controversy means for the players, Cricket Australia, what it means going forward, I'm just curious what it was like for you actually being there when it happened and being engulfed in that storm. Yeah, well, that's one of the things I tried to go into in the book. I, I thought at the time, I thought we're not going to have all the information, you know, that the, the players won't tell us what's going on. We don't necessarily have the full story. So the best thing that I can do is gather all of the information that is available and, and not necessarily draw conclusions myself, but lay it all out for people to draw their own conclusions. Um, but also just to tell the story of what it was like, because uh, I thought maybe the most interesting and useful thing I can do is is give the version of that story that I would if I were sitting across the table from someone at the pub and let them know what went on over there, because it was it, it was just the most insane sort of cyclone to be in the middle of. Uh, I've been travelling and covering cricket for six years, I guess, following the team um, pretty well full-time. And there's never been anything like it in terms of the amount of global interest, the intensity of the emotional response. It was it was 
just difficult to comprehend, um, and particularly that week or so in first in Cape Town and then in Johannesburg as the investigations were happening and uh, there was a resignation every day, it seemed, and the players were getting their um, suspensions handed down and all the rest of it. There were only seven or eight of us, I think, um, Australian journos covering that tour. So suddenly it fell to us to sort of be the spokespeople for this entire event. You know, all these media orgs across the world were trying to contact us um, and we were endlessly doing interviews and um, endlessly writing pieces and just sort of having to keep keep on top of the story but keep churning out the story as well to, to meet this demand. And so it was just the most intense time I've, I've ever had in my professional life. Yeah, in your book you say that everyone in Australia that had sent a tweet about cricket ended up on American cable networks. Certainly applies to me. I made my CNN debut because of the ball tampering <laughs> um, saga. So in the years since the ball tampering controversy, we've had, we had the three players suspended. Darren Lehman left. Two cultural reviews were undertaken. Pat Howard and Ben Amafio were sacked. Chairman David Peaver was forced out. And CEO James Sutherland moved on. So it has seen a huge shift um, in Australian cricket. I think Crash Craddock said at the time, never waste a crisis. And uh, I don't think it has been wasted. But let's go right back. You start the book pretty much in the afterplay in Cape Town when they were caught with the sandpaper. And you started at that press conference. Now, take us back into that room when Smith and Bancroft walked in uh, after play. It, it was such a strange day because, you know, initially when it happened, when the images started being flashed up on the monitors, we were mostly in a state of disbelief, I think, that you thought surely something that looks this bad and looks this blatant can't actually be what it seems to be because surely nobody could be that thick to, to try something so obvious. Um, and then more images kept coming through and more slow-mo close-up replays and it became clear that this was exactly what it looked like and and exactly what had gone on and so there wasn't any doubt from any of us in in the media corps that as to what had happened the only question was why and how it had happened so there was kind of this um you know last night before an execution feeling over the the second half of that day's play you know smith was off the field for substantial periods warner was deputizing as captain on the field the game was going on but the, the hearts really weren't in it and you know south africa were consolidating a, a big lead and and pushing on, I think Davilius was still at the crease at stumps, and they were they taking control of the game, but the game didn't really seem to matter anymore because we knew that there was something much bigger coming. And then to to hit stumps, and then to have Aiden Markram, the South African young opener, who who'd been out there at batting when the uh, when Bancroft had been caught, he came in and did his South African press conference. You know, spent spent ten minutes or so, took off, and then we just had to wait and wait and wait for the Australians because they'd they'd messaged to say they would be sending someone up but it didn't appear it took almost an hour um and then finally eventually we we saw smith and bancroft leaving the rooms on the other side of the ground and walking across so we knew it was going to be them but it was just the most strangely managed press conference they they came in and then instead of coming in and just addressing the problem because obviously there was only one thing that was going to be asked about and Smith could have come in and stood up and said, okay, you're all here to ask about this. Let's tell you what happened. Instead of that, he sat down and said, you know, uh, asked for questions um, and then had to get a question about what happened and then threw it to Cam Bancroft instead of answering it himself. So it was just a weird unwillingness to take on, almost to admit that the problem was as big as it was and to sort of pretend that it was a normal day. Then, of course, they lied extensively in their answers, both of them in that press conference. Um, and after taking questions from about eight people, they packed it up and left, which again was a massive misstep because they had two options. One was to not give a press conference at all and say they couldn't because the matter was still under consideration by the match referee. And the other would have been to come in and tell the complete truth and sit there for as long as possible, answer every single question and, and just spill their guts. And they had to do one or the other and they tried to sort of walk a middle line and in doing so they were dishonest and that was a large reason for why they were punished so heavily. Yeah, in my opinion, you know, the handling of that situation was completely off. I mean, whoever let those players in that room is responsible for a huge misstep. Who was 
the person that let them go into that room? Well, that's part of what we haven't really been able to untangle. Um, and, you know, there were there were certainly people who were trying to blame Kate Hutchinson, the media manager, which I think is probably unfair because I don't think she necessarily had the say on it. I, I think it, from what I gather, it, it was more coming from Smith and the players insisting that they had to do something to try to get out ahead of the story. But I don't know who would have been in a position to overrule on that. I mean, there's the media manager, Gavin Davies, the team manager. Um, he, he was there. He was present. So would would he be more senior than anyone else in that situation? Probably, although the coach would also have probably been able to veto it if required, and uh, Darren Lehman didn't do that. And there was a board member on tour who was Bob Avery, and his version of events was that he um, offered his assistance to team management if, and said that he, he could stand up and make a media appearance if required, and they didn't follow up on it or take him up on that. So I don't know if it was just that things were so disorganised and chaotic because um, a grenade had been lobbed into the change rooms that, uh, that they weren't able to make a good decision. But... You know, somewhere along the line, and this is one of the things that hasn't been addressed or answered, those three players who were suspended all must have agreed to lie and they must have agreed on a false story. They must have spoken amongst themselves and said, this is what we're going to tell them and this is our tactic. We're going to avoid naming David Warner, try to pretend he wasn't part of it, try to make sure that he doesn't get suspended because he was you know, teetering on the edge of a demerit point suspension um, from, from ICC punishments from earlier in the series. And uh, and we have to make sure that he doesn't get in trouble and we're going to tell them that it was sticky tape so that it seems a bit more impromptu and a bit less organised. And they must have come up with that together and agreed. So who else was involved? Was it just the three of them? I'd strongly doubt it. Um, did, did anyone else around the team know about it? Well, it, it seems unlikely that they wouldn't, but no one's actually answered those questions. So as those players are trying to make their comebacks and say that everything's behind them, there's still a whole lot they haven't actually told the truth about. Yeah, so you make a point that when any other country finds themselves in a similar situation, that, you know, they put up a barrier and they really try to protect their own team, but Cricket Australia didn't do that. Yeah, I think the difference is that Almost every other ball tampering case previously has had some plausible deniability. It's been, you know, cases of players being picked up on grainy TV footage where they might have a thumb on the ball, but they can say, oh, they were cleaning dirt off it. Or it's it's Sir with his breast mint, which, you know, was obvious that he was using it on the ball, but also he was he was correct in saying that every team uses confectionery in this manner and it's nothing new. You know, Marcus Triscothic wrote about it in his 2005 Ashes book and everybody said, oh, what a what a jolly old wheeze, you know, isn't that funny? You know, no one got angry about it, um, let alone said, oh, they should strip the Ashes off England or something they like should. that. They <laughs> should. Retrospectively. That's it. Um, so, and if you look at other incidents, they've always been around, you know, players running their spikes over the ball or players shining the ball too close to the zip on their trouser pocket or whatever it might be. And so there is deniability. The players can say, no, 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 it wasn't what it looked like. It was it was uh, an accident or it was innocent. And, and their boards can come down in their favour. And, and even probably Michael Atherton's the most undeniable case where he's taking dirt out of his pocket and rubbing it on the ball in that series against Pakistan. Was it? No, against South Africa, sorry, in the, in the mid-90s. But, but even then, it's sort of dirt from the pitch that he's picked up and it just seems a little bit more natural or part of the normal run of things. No one had been caught with an expressly foreign object that they had only brought onto the cricket ground for the purpose of cheating. And so this was the first absolutely bang to rights. You have no deniability about this whatsoever. Here is an image of you taking a bright yellow object out of your pocket, putting it in your hand, rubbing it on the ball, taking it out of your pocket, hiding it in your underwear so the umpires can't find it. You know, it was it was blatant and it looked really dumb. That was the other part. If they looked so amateurish and stupid the way they went about it, that I think the governing body had no ability to defend them. Um, they had to just front up and take the whack. Telford Vice, a South African cricket journalist, wrote, and you quoted him, that mm. South Africa are champion ball tamperers. And I think Australia just... Ah, they just weren't good at being sly. Other teams do it better than we do. So our own stupidity 
got us in trouble as much as anything. Yeah, um, or, or certainly that Cameron Bancroft wasn't any good at it. But, you know, David Warner had been strongly suspected of ball tampering in the previous test in Port Elizabeth. There'd, there'd been a lot of um, close-up footage of him on TV cameras and South African media outlets were writing about it. So he was under severe scrutiny. And then, it, you know, it seems a, a pretty strong coincidence that in the very next test at Cape Town, suddenly Warner wasn't doing the uh, the ball management duties anymore and had passed that on to Bancroft, who'd never done it before. So maybe it wasn't so much that Australia's no good at it as it was that uh, Cameron Bancroft was no good at it. Yeah. And the other thing was that um, people want to know whether it happened before in the Aussie team. But I just think that's a, a ludicrous argument because in the end... We know it goes on in world cricket, and it, it, the point is not that it went on before. Or I mean, if you looked into t- every test match, you could probably find something. So I don't think that's a valid point to say, oh, was Warner doing it before? I mean, he probably was, but so probably was South Africa. Yeah, and, and certainly that was the impression that, that I got. You know, one of the pieces in the puzzle I was able to put together was um, there are quite a few things going on in the 2014 Australian tour to South Africa as well. I won't go into a chapter and verse here, but it is in one of the chapters in the book where there were a lot of instances on that tour which I believe were actually the beginning point for what happened in 2018. I think I think that's where particularly um, there was a, a sort of grudge that David Warner developed against South Africa around what they were doing with the ball in 2014, which I suspect may have born fruit in 2018. There's a whole lot of detail there, but yeah, if you... If you look at the chapter on why all of this happened and, and where it began, I'll go, I'll go into that in some detail there. Um, there's a long, long history of ball tampering. You know, Arthur Maley, the great Australian leg spinner of the 1920s, used to admit it in his book. He used to use resin to help him grip the ball as a spinner, and he also used to pick the seam for his fast bowlers. They had McDonald and Gregory, the great opening fast bowling pair, and, and he used to stand the seam up for them to get more movement off the pitch. So it's it's been going on for as long as cricket's been going on. And I think the, the big issue in cricket is we're completely in denial about it. We love reverse swing. We love devastating spells of reverse swing bowling. And we like to pretend that no one's cheating in order to make that happen. So maybe we need to ditch the cognitive dissonance and admit that it, it does require manipulation of the ball. And so maybe that needs to be accommodated in the game somehow, you know, within umpiring supervision that a certain amount of manipulation can happen to the ball so that we can see that challenge between bat and ball develop. That, that's that's the big issue is the bowling sides are trying to come up with something to let them challenge batting sides. But if we're pretending it's not happening and we're not policing it, there's no one... The umpire looks at the ball at the end of each over. Well, so what? That They can't prove if there's damage to the ball, that it's been done by a player. And the only way a player gets caught is if TV cameras pick them up. And TV cameras belong to private companies almost exclusively for the home side. It's always the away team getting picked up. You know, it's Sri Lanka in the West Indies. It's Australia in South Africa. It's it's England in South Africa. Um, I think the only home side who's ever had their own player picked up was Atherton in that incident I mentioned before in, uh, in England. So there is no organisation in the way that ball tampering rules are enforced, which means effectively they're useless. And we're at a point where we either need to accept that tampering happens or effectively police it. So let's let's talk about Steve Smith. He's coming back into the Aussie team now. Uh, you know, looking at him, and, and it's not just the sandpaper fiasco, but it almost seems like he'll be a better soldier than he will be a captain. Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? I, I don't think he was ever... Um a great captain because I don't think he has a particularly strong personality. I think he's a bit of a... He he seems to me to be someone who's impressionable in that he adopts the attitudes of those around him rather than necessarily having a a strong idea of his own or, or of himself, who he actually is, what he stands for. So... He was a great batsman as a captain. His 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 batting stats that you know were amazing beforehand were even more amazing afterwards. He certainly lifted his game to another level. But it always struck me that he was he was almost an accidental captain because at the time that in mid twenty fifteen when Clark retired, Smith and Warner were literally the only batsmen who were guaranteed the best spots in the team. They had to be the leadership duo because because everybody else was um, was coming and going and. 
you know, could have been dropped two tests later. And, and Australia has this sort of paranoia about naming bowlers as captains. And, you know, to some extent, there's there's some sense in that if you, you can't really make someone like Mitchell Stark a captain because he misses so many games. So that, that's going to disrupt your, your team as you go on. So, and fast bowlers aren't smart enough. <laughs> well, see, I absolutely <laughs> don't agree with that because I think there have been some great fast bowling captains for other teams, but you've got to know that they're durable. I, I think someone like Pat Cummins might be making an argument for that now because he's been so physically consistent as well as consistent in performance. And Smith was like on this roller coaster. You know, anything that had happened, you'd get this like, you know, overreaction and he wasn't mature enough for the role. Yeah. He was he was incredibly stressed and worn out by it, and that's the thing is, you look at him in India in 2017, he was losing his rag by the end of that series, and he played incredibly. He made three hundreds in four tests in India, which is unheard of for an Australian to go over there and play that well in such difficult conditions. And yet he was frazzled on the field. He was losing his temper. He was yelling and swearing. He was caught up in that previous cheating controversy about looking for DRS advice from the dressing room, which they claimed was a one-off and an accident and had never happened before. But it does make you look at it twice in, in retrospect after the ball tampering stuff comes out, where you just think, well, his judgment wasn't very good when he was under pressure. He was he was frazzled because he invested himself so deeply in it. And I've gone into that in some detail in the book. I think the most telling thing for me was um, the Adelaide test against England when, you know, they needed 160 with four wickets in hand overnight on, on day four. They were incredibly unlikely to get there. And yet Smith said he barely slept that night, stayed up most of the night reading all the newspaper articles about whether he should have enforced the follow-on or not and, and stressing himself out about the chance of losing. And that, that was a test that was almost a foregone conclusion when Australia were already 1-0 up after one test in the series and he was willing to stress out that much about it. So it tells me that he wasn't handling things and he needed more support and probably people around him didn't recognise it because he was batting so well they thought he must be fine. Yeah. Um, do you think he will captain Australia again? I think that's the, that will be the sort of flinch response of the old conservative version of Cricket Australia is that they would love him too because it would it would sort of make all of the problems seem resolved. You'd say, oh, everything's forgiven, everything's back to normal, here's Smithy, he's a great batsman, he's the captain again. I don't think he should captain Australia again, not not out of sort of punishment, but just because he wasn't a great choice for the job and your best player isn't necessarily going to be your best captain. And I think Tim Payne's shown that. There's, you know, He's a very, very good wicketkeeper, but he's sometimes a, you know, a bit of a battler um, as far as a batsman, and, but he's doing his job and he's being a leader and that's what the side needs and I think there are a couple of candidates coming through the ranks now who could be in a position to be very good leaders in a couple of years whenever Payne decides that that he's done but you know he he might have a while in him yet because he's he's had this late refresh to his career and suddenly he's Australia's test captain you know why would he want to retire before it's time and before there's a good candidate set up to to resume so I think if they if they try to hurry Smith back as soon as his captaincy ban ends, which is another year from now, I think Australian cricket would be doing itself a real disservice uh, because you can't just make your past mistakes go away by pretending they didn't happen. And it's not a matter of punishing Smith, but it's a matter of saying that he probably wasn't the right choice to begin with um, or he was forced a forced choice by circumstances. But they have the option to make better choices now um, and to let him just concentrate on playing and being trying to trying to become that dominant player again because he was so good, it's going to be very difficult for him to regain that level. I guess he could have learnt from what happened and it could make him a better captain now. It could have solidified you know, his thoughts on leadership or even formed any thoughts on leadership. And then... I don't know if it has, Andrew. Like, from the evidence I've seen, I don't think it has because the thing that stands out for me is that while in the middle of this ban, whenever it was around November or so, Steve Smith thought it was a good idea to do a TV ad for a phone company where he used the fact that he was suspended as the selling point for, as like an inspirational message to say, oh, I've had some really tough days, and um, but it's you know it's made me learn about my character and be a better person and blah blah blah. And then you come to the end of the ad and he's flogging mobile phones. And I thought I I, I, I cannot believe that someone could be so tone deaf that they would think that that was appropriate. While you're suspended, disappear. 
stay out of the limelight. He probably needed don't the cash, Jeff. Media. I don't think he did because I think he's been paid very, very well over the previous four or five years as he's been playing IPL and he's been test captain and all the rest of it. He, he played some CPL and you know, BCL stints in T20 leagues while he was suspended. I, I very much doubt that he needed the coin. It, it, it shows an extraordinary lack of judgment to me, Andrew, to say that, mm. to, to, to think that that would be an appropriate thing to do while you're suspended. I just, I can't believe that someone would make that decision. Yeah, I think as well there are lots of examples of really great batsmen that are not suited to leadership, like Tendulkar, Lara, even A.B. de Villiers. Sometimes if you're just so invested in your craft, maybe being a leader at the same time is not the best thing. Yeah, well, I mean, it didn't. It certainly didn't seem to hurt his batting. No, no, not at all. But it hurt his leadership. Yeah, and in terms of personality, you know, I don't, I don't think Smith is sort of self-obsessed or self-absorbed in the way that someone like Lara was, where that was probably the the major stumbling block to him being able to lead a team. Um, but just upset the whole of the West Indies. Well done. I'm happy to. <laughs> it'd take a few hits. Um, look, I mean, you know, they, they, all of those players are great batsmen, but they, they weren't necessarily great leaders. Um, no, no, I, I agree. And Dorker always seemed to be a fairly quiet kind of character and not necessarily someone who had the force of personality versus someone like Saurabh Ganguly, who wasn't as good a batsman, but he was uh, he was a more dynamic leader. And Smith, to me, is a bit like that, where he's, he's just a bit of a, a blank sheet of paper as a leader. He doesn't really have a style of his own. Whereas um, someone like Payne has come in and said, "All right, this is this is now my team, and we're going to play my way." It was interesting when Tim Payne was given the job. He said that in the last you know few years, he's written down bits of advice or tips that he's got from other coaches and captain, and, and kept his own diary over the last few years about you know being a good leader and what elements he's seen. So it just shows a maturity that Smith definitely didn't have you you write in your book about south africa that smith was crumbling strung out and manic warner was enraged acting out and had a long track record so my question to you is jeff how negligent was darren lehman in not identifying the situation at the time well from what it looks like i mean i uh, i've been covering the team for Darren Lehman's whole coaching career, we, we came into the mix at around about the same time, the 2013 Ashes, and his approach always seemed to be almost completely hands-off, you know, a coach almost in absentia, and just let the players do what they want and be vaguely encouraging uh, and sort of, you know, to tell people, oh, she'll be right, mate, go out there and give it a whack. I may be simplifying things, but that seemed to be about it. And that might have worked for a team with a lot of senior and headstrong players, sort of Michael Clark, Shane Watson, Mitchell Johnson, Brad Haddon, where they didn't really want to be told what to do. They just wanted to go and play. They already thought they knew how to play and they were sick of, you know, they didn't like Mickey Arthur because they thought that he was babying them and treating them like school kids, even though they were probably acting like school kids some of the time. Sounds like they needed it. Yeah, well, they may have done, but they certainly didn't want it or didn't think they needed it. So Lehman probably got results in the first two years with that team because he was willing just to let them go and basically let Clark run the team and let them do what they wanted. When it came time for Smith to take over, six senior players retired in the space of a couple of months and suddenly there was this huge gulf in experience and it was Smith and Warner and then there were sort of bits and pieces players like Kawaja hadn't nailed down a spot. The Marsh brothers were floating in and out of that team. Joe Burns was coming and going. But there was really no consistency in that side. And that's probably when Lehman's approach was no longer relevant. But because he'd won an Ashes whitewash in a World Cup, you know, he was officially a successful coach. So they they just signed him up for a contract extension and kept him on. So it's there were probably other people in the setup as well. They have so many support staff, all of these medical staff and, and sports psychologists and team support in every way, shape and form. They should have been able to see, you know, we could see that things weren't going well. We could see there was a lot of pressure on Smith and Warner, you know, Warner with the abuse being directed at his family by crowds around South Africa. I, I can only imagine what that would do to you mentally to have the people you love and care about be abused like that, not just that it happened once and you had to deal with it, but that it was happening day after day. 
as they came to the game to watch you play. And then Smith trying to deal with his vice-captain in this incandescent rage, but also having to deal with the fact that he was struggling to make runs himself. He was exhausted. He'd had the mental exhaustion of captaining the Ashes win, and, and he was cooked. So I think there was a massive failure generally at the CA team administrative support end in terms of managing that and recognising that. Yeah, Lehman needed to do better, but you go up the chain, and I don't want to talk about Pat Howard for too long because... I feel like I've stuck the boot in Pat Howard on a lot of podcasts and he's gone now from Cricket <laughs> Australia. And, you know, I do think he was well-intentioned. He just, in my opinion, wasn't very good at his job. But you say that in in six and a half years that Pat Howard was in the job, there were five crises uh, around the Australian cricket team. So, I mean, that's, mm. that just sort of underlines he might not have been great at his job and perhaps he should have seen that Lehman wasn't on top of things uh, over there. Well, well, he was the one who organised the contract extension for Lehman. You know, well before his contract was up, I think they, I think they re-signed him in 2016, maybe through to um, 2019. So it was a case of just the results are there. Therefore, we don't really need to worry about how we're getting those results and whether that's going to be replicable with a new and inexperienced team versus a, a very experienced team. One revelation in your book that really just jumped out at me was Ben Amafio, who has been sacked and who was in charge of like the media side of Cricket Australia, was acting as James Brayshaw's agent at the time while working for Cricket Australia. I hadn't heard that before, but that to me just indicates the rotten culture that was coming out of Cricket Australia. Well, yeah, I mean, it was extraordinary when that was reported. It was the um, Financial Review that reported that, I think Joe Aston, who got that story initially. And it would have been 2016, I think, from memory. So it was around the time that... Um, Brayshaw's contract with Channel 9 was coming to an end and he was trying to negotiate a new contract. And at the same time, the you know preliminary negotiations for the next cricket media rights deal were also underway because that was signed in April 2018. But you know they, they get it well out ahead of these things because you're, you're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars through a TV network. So there were discussions underway with Nine and, and Ben Amafio was head of the managing all of the broadcast rights, basically. So while he was running those negotiations with Nine, he then popped up at Channel Nine in a different meeting saying that he was Brayshaw's agent and trying to negotiate a new contract for Brayshaw. And I think the senior people at Nine were flabbergasted by this and said, you know, there's absolutely no way you can do that. You can't act in both these capacities at once. So it was sort of smacked down and eventually Brayshaw didn't get a new contract and he moved to Channel 7 where he was doing football and then, you know, as as we know, 18 months later or whatever it was, the cricket rights moved to Channel 7. Coincidence or not? You be the judge, uh, listener. Well, I, I, I can't possibly comment on that, but it, it is it is a curious one. Also, that um, that, tri- that Triple M as a radio station picked up cricket rights uh, almost exactly around the same time as Rachel left Channel 9. He then mo- went to do the cricket commentary for Triple M. So that was also interesting because, of course, Ben Amafio used to run Triple M before he was at Cricket Australia. So there's a whole tangled web there. But what was interesting was that when James Sutherland was confronted with this saying, you know, your your media executive has been acting as an agent for a, a broadcaster, he said, oh, well, well, we'll deal with these things behind closed doors and they'll be dealt with and don't worry about it and refused to answer any questions on it. So it was indicative of, um, you know, a lot of people back Sutherland as responsible for all of the problems. I don't necessarily think he was, but I, I do think he had a tendency to look the other way if something seemed like it was too difficult. Part of the blame pie. I was just leaving Lehman quickly. I really want to point out, because this is a great point you made, that you point out that none of the players made a point of apologising to the coach in their speeches even though they cost him a job and his reputation. So I guess that sort of speaks to the way the players felt. Well, that's an interesting one. And when you're trying to work out whether the coach knew anything, you know, about the plan to deceive people in the media conference and so on, or or whether the players were potentially covering for the coach in some way, you know, obviously it's complete speculation, but it, it's it's interesting to me that they weren't filled with remorse for what they'd done to the coach, which you would have thought if the coach knew nothing about it whatsoever, was completely blameless and was dragged into it by his players being miscreants and it cost him his job, 
you would think that they would be more apologetic about that. Agree. All right, listeners, we are going to take a quick break on the Cricket Unfiltered podcast. When we get back, uh, Jeff and I are going to try and unpack David Warner's complexities. And I also want to look at South Africa's part in um, the ball tampering controversy. But, Jeff, before the break, I just want to ask you, where can the listeners get your book? Oh, right. Well, it's, uh, I think, as they say in the classics, it's available in all good bookstores. Um, it's, it's pretty broadly available across the country, but you can also find it at most of the online outlets, your sort of booktopia types and Amazon and whatnot. Uh, or if you, if you go to my Twitter account at Jeff Lemon Sport, there's a link in the, in the bio there, which will take you to the preferred retailer for, for my benefit anyway. Um, or aside from that, you can, if you, if you, uh, if you want to get hold of a signed one, you can message me on Twitter and uh, I'll see if I can send one through. Uh, but we're also having a book launch. So this, I think this pod's out on Monday the 25th. So we're having a book launch in Melbourne on Thursday the 28th. The book actually came out a, a few months ago, but cricket season was on, so we never had the opportunity to launch it. So uh, we're going to be at the Commercial Club Hotel in Fitzroy from about 7.30 on Thursday the 28th of March. So if you want to come by and grab a beverage, please do. It's worth getting a hard copy of your book because it's got the the words Steve Smith's men are in sandpaper like, or like a, a yellow <laughs> abrasive material. So, Yeah, look, that was very much a joke in passing in the design conference with the publisher. I sort of dropped that as a, you know, a, a brief aside, but the book designer said, mm, oh, yeah, maybe. Hang on. Let me uh, let me look into it. And somehow they managed to pull it together. So it was, it was incredible work. Uh, I think Ligare Press for the printers, and they, they did a magnificent job. They did indeed. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back to continue our discussion on the sandpaper controversy. You wouldn't believe it. David Warner, superb. Needs an e-pumped up. You're listening to the Cricket Unfiltered podcast. I'm your host, Menas, and on the line is Jeff Lemon, author of Steve Smith's Men. All right, so let's um, get on now to David Warner because I think you bring to light his complexity and the way he can swing uh, from extremes in his behaviour. I mean... I think the most strange thing about David Warner is I'm convinced he would be a better captain than Steve Smith was. Yeah, well, it's an interesting point. He'll never get the opportunity to do that because he's banned for life from captaining any Australian side. So he can captain in in the IPL or other overseas leagues, but can never captain an Australian team again. We saw how good he was as a captain in a couple of white ball series when Smith had to sit out so in Sri Lanka in 2016 and and again in New Zealand in 2018 actually just before the ball tampering series Warner was captain of the T20 side over there when they won a triangular tournament against England and New Zealand and he did a terrific job there was a game where they were chasing 250 odd I think against New Zealand at Mm. Eden Park and the bowlers had been blown away, the Australian bowlers, in, in the first innings. But Warner was—they said he was relentlessly upbeat throughout. He—he he had an arm around every bowler's shoulder every time a ball went for six, saying, you know, "It doesn't matter. We'll chase them anyway. Get the next one. Just just bowl the next one in the right spot." And when it came to the run chase, he—he he gave everyone a huge G up in the rooms and said, "There's absolutely no worries. We'll chase this easily." He came out and made 50 off 20 balls to open the, the batting and they cruised home with a couple of overs to spare. So he, for other players in the team, they've, they've said that he's great at being an on-field leader in that sense. I guess the only uh, question, which is a very major question, is around his behaviour on the field. But it, it seems to me that his kind of aggro, super abrasive behaviour on the field was also very much at the direction of others because... He was very much like that when he started his career, and then he stopped for a good couple of years. He sort of became the reverend. But he, I, I think he, the way that he spoke about it, it was in the West Indies in 2015 before the Ashes that year, and people noticed that he was being quiet on the field and asked him, and he said, "Look, I've, I've had enough of being the attack dog for someone else, and I don't want to do it anymore." And the implication was that he'd been directed by Clark and Lehman to play that role, and they 
rejected that and said that they hadn't asked him to do it. But I, I wonder whether they'd certainly given him the impression that they wanted him to do it by the general permissiveness that he'd been met with around the team where he'd never really got in trouble within the team for anything that he'd done on the field. So eventually he decided he was going to stop and he did stop for a couple of years. There wasn't really a peep out of him. And then before the 1718 Ashes, so it's one of the things we cover in the book, there was specific direction from people high up at Cricket Australia, higher up than the coach, saying we need you to be aggressive because we need aggressive players on the field to unsettle the English and and make sure that they can't challenge us in the ashes. And so he was expressly asked to do it and he was expressly asked to do it again before the South Africa series. And so that's exactly what he did without any hesitation. He obviously was happy to do a job for the team, but it wasn't like it was all coming from David Warner. No, not at all. Uh, What do you think David Warner's silence in the last year I mean, he's been the the quietest of all of them, all the band plays. What does that say about the way he's sort of taken the band? And also, I mean, Mike Whitney, former Australian fast bowler who's involved with Randwick Petersham, went on the record last week and said that Warner's gone above and beyond at Randwick Petersham to to help the young players and to, to go to training and, you know, be involved with the club. So what does that say about him? I mean, is he... The, the person that, you know, was shouting at Aidan Markram in the first test in South Africa? Or is he more the person that was quite, you know, has been quiet and been helping at the community level? I think the answer is that he's both and he's always been both. It, it's never, because when he had that sort of reverend episode, people kept writing about it as a transformation, as in David Warner used to be angry and now he's evolved. And it turned out that it wasn't a one-way transformation. It was just presenting different facets of his character. I think he's very multifaceted. I think he has a lot of different modes and some of them are contradictory to each other, but it doesn't make them any less sincere when they're happening. You know, he's David Warner bloody loves cricket. You talk to him about cricket about the technical side of the game and and he will go into such intense detail and so when it comes to something like helping out at at training helping helping younger kids develop you know the footage that came out of some of the workshops he was doing up in um, Darwin while he was banned he obviously bloody loves it he loves getting in there and, and helping people play the game because he loves the game that doesn't mean that he's not also explosive and aggressive on the field he can be both of those things at once and it, and it also doesn't mean that it's okay when he acts like that on the field but he's also a product of his culture he's someone who's been told for most of his career that that's all good because he's good at cricket or or more so he's been told that that's what teams want because they feel like it gives them an edge so <clears throat> i think there's a much broader cultural problem in australian cricket Warner's just an example of it so the fact that everything gets lumped onto him is it's just too convenient to say oh it's all david warner's fault because he's a prick it's not it's not all about him he's just he's just one piece in that puzzle and i think the fact that he's kept quiet for the last year just it only shows that he's the best advised of the three um he knows that people are blaming him more than anyone else and that there's really nothing to be gained by speaking out and so he's he's kept to himself because there's no reason not to um, and I think the other two have had poorer advice and have given a poorer account of themselves in terms of the sort of some of the interviews that Cameron Bancroft has given are frankly bizarre in terms of the way that he's approaching his comeback and and as I mentioned earlier the advertising stuff with Steve Smith is a very weird one as well. Now in the book you write I can't stress this enough Warner loves Candace Falzone more than anything else. Now I want to talk about the way South Africa and the crowds and what happened over there led to the sandpaper controversy. I mean we saw it on the TV with the the masks and, um, you know, the, the abuse directed at Candace Falzon. How vile, disgusting and bad was it over there? It was it was completely intense. It was... I'd, I'd never seen anything like it. In, in Cape Town especially, there's an outdoor area where the players' families can watch the game from um, and there's not much room inside the rooms, so they, they sit on this outside balcony, which is quite accessible to the other stands around it, you know, not not physically accessible, but certainly uh, in audio terms. And there were large groups of people every day screaming abuse at her, you know, all, all kinds of um, of foul invective, which you probably don't want me to mention on your podcast, but people can 
use their imagination. And it's the kind of stuff that gets used against women all the time. It's this, you notice it all the time when men want to abuse women almost without fail, the first thing they will reach for is, is sexualized abuse. So it'll either be, you know, abuse to indicate that you're ugly or unattractive or abuse to indicate that you have sex and therefore you're a bad person. And it's the same old prudish, boring sort of shit that we've had for years and years and years. It's the same prudish, boring insults based around the same ideas that, you know, that the Apparently, women are supposed to stay at home wearing a sheet over their heads and, and never be seen or heard. So that's the kind of stuff they were dishing out to her, and for no other reason than because they they thought it was fun. There was momentum behind it. People were encouraging this idea, and it was they didn't like David Warner, so it was a way of getting back at him. And it really illustrates that there's this immediate willingness from a from a male cultural viewpoint to use women just as a as a hostage basically as a tool uh, to, to to hurt or irritate men who are close to them and it's a it's an incredibly archaic and old-fashioned idea that shouldn't be part of the way that we operate anymore and uh, you know hopefully it's going to change and it'll be it'll keep being challenged but it, it hasn't changed yet it seemed like it was real hateful stuff directed at the Australians yeah, there was, and it, it was there was a an anger behind it, and you can understand there being an anger because from their point of view, you know, David Warner had been abusing Quentin de Kock for hours in Durban, and he had. There was no no doubt about that. Um, there'd been a, a full session of relentless, boring sledging because that's the kind of thing that Warner can do. There's there's no defending that. He's doing it because he thinks it's okay, and it's and he's been led to believe that in the context of the Australian cricket team, it's okay. That should never have been the case. You know, no one should ever have been led to believe that. And hopefully, that is one thing that has changed by now, um, and, and that Tim Payne has really put his foot down on is that we don't do that anymore. We don't play that way anymore. And I think you know, even players like Warner would respect that now because. It's very clear, whereas before that it wasn't clear. There was no clarity on it. There was tacit encouragement of that. Like, that's all good. As long as we get the guy out, you can say whatever you want to him. So Warner absolutely started the conflict. But de Kock's choice of means to fire back was using someone else, was using Candace Felsen as, as a as a hostage, basically, to, to try to irritate the other player. And that escalates, you know, Warner escalates the, the near physical confrontation. And so that makes everybody in South Africa think, well, it, you know, the lines are clear. He's the bad guy. He's, he's attacking our player. So it's all fair game against him. And, you know, that might be true if, if they were actually going at him, but they weren't. They were going at someone else who happened to be married to him. Do you feel like the South African team... I wouldn't say encourage some of the behaviour towards the Australian team, but do you think they helped contribute to it? I mean, obviously, de Kock said the, the slur to Warner in the stairwell, but, you know, I wasn't there. What was the South African team's reaction to the what was going on away from the field? And I guess what was Cricket South Africa's reaction to the... I mean, we had the photos of those two South African officials in their masks. I mean, was this a sort of mass wave of nastiness coming from them? Well, the officials weren't. Yeah, they they weren't wearing the masks that they were posing with with punters who were, and they and the officials had intervened to get those people let in when security initially had been confiscating masks from people. So they were definitely involved. I don't think the players were encouraging it. They're a, a very decent team, the South African cricket team, and and Duplessis is a, a decent character, and you know people might be a bit satirical about that because he's been involved in some ball tampering stuff before but as we said who hasn't so I don't think he was keen on having the Australian players abused in the way that they were but he was very keen on beating Australia because because the South African team felt very affronted by what had happened in Durban with Warner with the stairwell fight and all the rest of it they felt that you know that Warner had provoked that and had caused that and that that wasn't what they wanted to be going on. You can see it in the security footage. Duplessis comes out of the South African change room and he's the one who settles the whole thing down and says this is ridiculous and points Warner off into the change room and says, you go in there, our guys come in here, you know, this this stops here. And he, I, I interviewed him after the 
after the Johannesburg test at the end of the series and he said there was a huge motivation from that point that they went 1-0 down in Durban but they were not going to lose that series after that. They were absolutely determined to beat that Australian side. So that's responding to the provocation in the right way which is, you know, this player has insulted us so we're going to beat his team. You know, we're not going to lead abuse of his family. So I don't think the South African players encouraged it. You know, all of these players play together in, in IPL teams and the like. Smith and Duplessis played together for several seasons. So I, I think between the players, there's probably more familiarity and more decency because they know each other than there would be between crowds and players. Uh, what about that day in South Africa? Because you bring this to life with the the cameraman who got Bancroft and, you know, high-fiving and the Super Sports TV director saying, our guys did a very good job today. I mean, it looks like South Africa was out to get us. I mean, there is years and years of resentment of Australia going there and beating them and rubbing their nose in it and being arrogant. And this was like, we're going to get you now. Yeah, I, I think it I think it was that they had been given the bait to sniff in Port Elizabeth. So Port Elizabeth was where there were there were back channel whispers going around saying that the Australians are sandpapering the ball. You know, that was being said. Whether it's you know, true or not isn't conclusively proven, but there's strong evidence that indicates that something was awry. So they were looking into it and they didn't have anything conclusive, but they did, you know, they were looking at Warner and they were looking at the strapping on his hands and there were lots of close-up video stills and so on of the, the, the tape on his fingers and his palm and all the rest of it because there'd been that suggestion that, that something dodgy was going on and the Australians in Port Elizabeth were reversing the ball, you know, basically from over one through, through till the end. It was, it was an incredibly consistent display of reverse swing bowling from the entire bowling attack. So there were things to be looked at, and I think that they they got wind of it. They, you know, the, the the fox was released, the hunt was on, and when they saw that Bancroft had been handed the duties because Warner had been under such scrutiny, they thought, oh, there's definitely something on here. We've just got to watch him, and we've got to see what happens. And so they were, you know, they had half a dozen cameras basically uh, dedicated on Bancroft the entire day just to see if he did anything, and in the end, he did. So, you know, I, I don't think it was necessarily a sort of agenda-driven part of it. Well, it sounds like they were happy about it, though. It sounds like... No, well, they were. I think they were happy about it because they did an incredible job. If you're a cameraman, you're shooting from a balcony 120 metres away. And they did an amazing job of getting the first batch of footage, sitting on it for long enough uh, that they could set up the sting and have cameras on everybody relevant, then run it on the big screen, make Bancroft panic, he hides the stuff down his pants. They get that lot of footage. And so when you put it all together, they've got Darren Lehman on the walkie-talkie. They've got Pete Hanscom on the walkie-talkie. They've got Hanscom coming out to deliver the message. They've got Bancroft panicking and walking away from the umpires and hiding the evidence. They've got the initial um, Exhibit A of him sandpapering the ball in the first place. Just from a technical perspective, they did an incredible job of nailing the sting because, as I said before, no one's ever been caught that red-handed before. Everyone's always had some plausible deniability. There was none. So I think if you just look at it from a technical point of view as a TV camera team, they did they did an amazing job. And they're the ones who made sure that, that something clear happened from this because there was no way to deny what had gone on. So, you know, they're, they're, I'm sure there was a, <clears throat> a level of partisan enjoyment to it as well, but there was also just the enjoyment of having executed perfectly. But I guess there's certainly the question for me of, you know, what have South Africa done in terms of managing the ball over the last 10 years of, of, of test cricket in their own country? And has there ever been any interest in picking that up on camera as well? Yeah, man, definitely a good point. All right, Jeff, you've been so good with your time. We have just talked and talked and talked, but I just want to end it in the present. Uh, you've just spent the whole summer following the Australian cricket team around Justin Langer, the new coach. Now, I know when Justin Langer speaks, some of it can be a bit cringy and he I always say he sounds like he's a Scientologist or something. But reading your book, I really get the feeling that actually someone like him is needed. And you make the point that he, you know, he's coming from a culture that he's trying to change. But I think Langer is capable of evolution. I think he is willing to change. And I think, you know, had he been there when Smith was in charge 
history could have gone so differently. So I think, what, what's your impression though? You followed them all summer, you know, you went through the Lehman era, now you saw Langer. Tell me about it. He's definitely more involved, more hands-on. He, he knows that he has a young team that he needs to look after and he's trying to build that team and he's very conscious of the pastoral care element. So I think that's important. Whereas, you know, whereas Lehman's hands-off approach probably didn't work so well for young players. So I think they've both got a problem with anointing favourites and deciding that they like someone, the way someone goes about their cricket, therefore this guy's going to be in the team almost regardless of their results, whereas other players who might have the results don't get the same backing or the same love. There was definitely the sense under Lehman that once you were out of favour, that was it. You you weren't going to be given any sort of accommodation after that. So I don't necessarily know if that's changed. So I think Lang has been been very prickly at times, with not very not very able to handle the scrutiny and criticism that comes with the job. Because of course there will be scrutiny of your decisions, and there'll be criticism if they're deemed to not make sense. And the number of times that he's flared up at people asking questions or got very defensive rather than just dealing with the question at hand is something that he's got to work on and that he wasn't really prepared for the level of scrutiny stepping up as you know from western australia coach so that's that's maybe a, a personal issue for him but i think he understands that a new direction is needed for the australian team but i, I don't think he necessarily understands how badly that's needed there was an interview he did when he just came into the job with nasa hussein where he was basically saying things had gone wrong in the australian team over the past year or so but before that he was kind of saying in his day they'd been respected as being tough but fair opponents and I thought that's that's just not true the, a lot of a huge proportion of the, the the teams they played against in the early 2000s didn't they respected the Australians for being good but they didn't respect them for being decent they didn't respect them for the way that they treated other teams on the field so there's there's sort of a mix of magic realism and actual realism in, in the Langer method. It's partly good and partly not so good. Uh, and last thing, everybody's asking about how Smith and Warner will go fitting back into the team, especially with Stark and Hazelwood that were, well, in the, you, you put, you know, in that press conference when Smith said the leadership group it implied Stark and Hazelwood had prior knowledge of the sandpaper and you got some great quotes from Mitchell Stark talking at a forum not long after how much repair do you think is needed with Smith and Warner and those bowlers? There's definitely some I think probably just having a year of water under the bridge will help but there would need to be an awareness that that those other players feel like they were thrown under the bus. There are certainly people who speculate about how how could they not have known as fast bowlers, how could they not have known what was happening to the ball. But I don't actually necessarily agree with that suspicion because I think that potentially if, if Warner was orchestrating this stuff, he he had enough clout within the team not to be questioned, basically. He could... He could do what he wanted and they would probably just accept what they were given. And, you know, the condition that the ball comes back to you in, so be it. You know, maybe it's a case of don't ask too many questions. But whether they expressly knew about it, I, I don't necessarily think that is that likely. So there's there's some repair needed, although time will have helped. But mainly it, it's about buying into the way they want to do things now. And I don't think there'll be that much trouble with it. Because as I said, I think Smith has always just adopted the dominant social cultural narrative around him at the time he tends to conform to that and and as for Warner he knows that he wants to get his career back on track and it's not like it was always his idea to go out and be aggressive so if he's being told not to do it well there's a good chance he won't so whether whether that costs him any edge as a player is going to be interesting Um, and, and whether Smith can get to the same level because I think Smith's technique was so unusual and so finely honed that that I think if he dips two or three percent in terms of his you know his hand-eye coordination or his movement his whole technique might come undone he's someone who was so dominant for that four or five years when he was averaging mid-70s and just had an incredible run you know 20 2300s that he's made 2200s in that time can he get back to that level i i hope so but i've got my worries about it i've, I've got some doubts crash craddock often wonders whether smith's ego's been so dented by what happened whether he'll 
be the same batsman at the crease. But I guess in the time-honoured tradition of journalist cliches, time will tell, Jeff. Time will tell. Time will tell. We can only wait and see. Exactly. Uh, well, Jeff, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been really great to have you on finally. Um, Steve Smith's Men is a fantastic book. Congratulations. And I think the ending to it, and I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to spoil it, but you point out that Australia can look at its own cricket heritage in a different way. And I think it's a, a really important point. You make maybe the most important point. So uh, congratulations on the fantastic book. Thank you, Andrew. Yeah, it was uh, a lot of fun getting it done, but it's been really great to hear from all the people who read it and enjoyed it. So thanks to everybody who's, uh, who's grabbed a copy. Well, listeners, that's it for this episode of Cricket Unfiltered. Thanks so much to Jeff Lemon for coming on. Go and get his book, Steve Smith's Men. You've been listening to the Cricket Unfiltered podcast by News Corp, and I'm your host and producer, Andrew Mensel, and I'll be back soon with another show. <laughs> 